So which side is this, the bride or? <laughs> Something happened here. I, okay, well, okay. Today you can see that we're going to have dedication, baby dedication, a wonderful thing. Yeah, so we're going to do that, and uh, baby Evelyn's daddy is going to do that. So we're going to turn that over to him, and I think he's happy to do that. I think, think he's excited, so we look forward to that. Uh, I don't think I have any announcements. Pastor Sandy is on his mission trip, and I'm sorry, I don't remember what country he's in. Is it? He's in Ohio now. That's a foreign country. Yes. Yeah. No, he was in El Salvador. Dominican Republic. Thank you. Yeah, I, I have forgotten exactly where he was. But remember last Sunday he said he lost his Bible and he had to get a new Bible. Remember he was telling us that he had a new cover on his Bible. We also lost his telephone just before he left the country. Uh, he said he didn't know whether he lost it or somebody stole it. Oh my gosh, that's amazing, that's amazing. Thank goodness the guy called. So, okay, they can be reunited. So, oh well. Okay, well, uh, I think, seems like I should be telling you something else, but I don't know what it might be. Uh, we have birthdays coming up, and we'll get to that at the time. Uh, that and during our concerns, so we'll we'll talk about that then. We have an opening hymn to sing, ladies and gentlemen. It's number two sixty seven. Come, thou Almighty King. Let's stand and sing number two sixty seven. We'll see about any updates. Christine, do you have anything that you need to update us on? Okay. All right. So we're we seem to be good with what's printed. Anybody have anything they'd like to verbally add? Nancy, I can always count on you. <laughs> yeah. Just two things. One, that today is our, as a nation, we're asked to pray for our president. Uh, and the second is, I mentioned Bonnie Messick surgery was postponed, I think, two weeks ago. And that was because when they did a scan, they saw something on her hip bone. They did a PET scan. Well, they thought it probably was a metastasis of her cancer. Uh, they did a PET scan, and after much prayer, though, it didn't light up. Uh, but they said it could be an old metastasis that got treated with her chemo. But they were going to do an MRI, I think, yet, and some more testing before they would proceed with the surgery. But she thanks all the people who have been praying for her. She has hope, and she's going to trust in the Lord. Anyone else while I'm back here? You're all quiet. Okay.
Well, we do have some birthdays, like I pointed out. And uh, hmm. <clears throat> Paul, you're going to be a year older on Tuesday. Oh, that's your son, Paul. Yeah, I always get the A and the M mixed up. Yeah. So Paul's going to be... <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, on Thursday, Paul and Christine are going to have a wedding anniversary. And Gary and Shirley are going to have a wedding anniversary. Oh, my goodness sakes. That's wonderful. How many years? 60. Shirley? 45. Wow. Well, we can tell you're not movie stars. You would have been divorced millions of years ago. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I could say something in addition to that, but. <laughs> I thought you were going to say. <laughs> Pure torture. No. No. And, man, Paul. <laughs> and Jim Dobb has a birthday, too. Jim's not here this morning, is he? No. Okay. Well. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm, I, I continually miss them. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, why don't we sing, we'll do it a little bit backwards. We'll sing happy birthday, and then... Uh, We'll give our prayer for our concerns. So let's sing happy birthday to Paul and Jim. Okay. Maestro? Happy birthday. Okay, let's turn back to our prayer concerns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so great to be joyous and to celebrate anniversaries and birthdays, anniversaries that are made with you in mind. Thank you for blessing these couples, giving them long life together. And like Christine says, ups and downs, but always with you in mind. That is truly a blessing. 
And of course, we do have concerns, we have joys, and people have various concerns and joys that they don't verbalize, but you know what they are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being the one who always knows, who's never kept in the dark, who always has everything in hand, and the one we can depend on. You are so great, so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for little ones. Thank you for older ones. Thank you for everyone in your care. Thank you, Lord. I ask your blessing on this congregation as we bless you because you are truly worthy. Thank you, Lord, for all you do for us and all that you can do in the future. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Pastor Ryan, we're going to turn it over to you. About becoming a pastor, they give you this great book that tells you what to Okay. So today we come with hearts full of joy and wonder as we celebrate God's gift of Evelyn to this world. We marvel at the grace-filled act by which God gives such a precious gift. And we celebrate the promise of God's future that Evelyn represents. And we declare ourselves open to new responsibilities and relationships that Evelyn's presence brings. And this is a service of both consecration and commitment. And today we consecrate Evelyn before God. And before we ever saw her, God was at work creating and shaping her life. And before we ever called Evelyn by name, God said, this is my child. And thus we joyfully affirm that Evelyn is a child of God, which means she is, belongs to God before she belongs to Kayla and myself. And this is a service of commitment for all of us, for parents and for family and friends and the faith community. And we commit ourselves to sharing with God in the nurturing and upbringing of Evelyn. It's not a commitment that any of us should take lightly, but neither is it a burden that we must carry alone. For as God is present with us in this time of celebration, so God promises to be present with us each day of the future as we seek to live out the commitments we make here today. And I want to read just from Luke 18, verse 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him. This is people of the community. They were bringing infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the, when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So there's a responsive reading in our bulletins. I'm going to invite Kayla to come up here with me and Luke to stand here. I'm going to borrow a bulletin, Kayla. Thank you. Hey, you have to stand down here. Are you going to sit there? Okay. Okay, so if we want to all read this together, the celebration of, conse of consecration. This morning... We celebrate the gift of new life among us, coming in the person of Evelyn Elizabeth Clift, 
Life we have waited for expectantly. Life we have watched growing month by month. Life we have welcomed in pain and joy. Life we see and hear and touch and smell. We celebrate the gift of new life among us. As in the perfect in John. We give thanks for a baby born with fragile yet fully human features reflecting our image and God's. We give thanks for the extension of family across the miles and across the generations. We give thanks for the potential and opportunity this birth heralds, as well as for the challenge and commitment it calls forth. We give thanks for the joy of this moment and the promise of God's continuing presence among us. Would you like to hold her or would you like me to hold her? Okay, well, I'll hold her and walk her around here for a little bit. Let everybody get a good look. And this is your dress? This was Kayla's dress. Her first name, Evelyn. My great-grandmother is Evelyn. Kayla is your great-grandmother, Elizabeth? Or is it great 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 grandmother is Elizabeth. March tenth. Yeah, thank you, Polly. Oh, I better go up here. Okay. Okay. I'm getting too far for mom. <laughs> okay. Evelyn, you are consecrated to God, and God's Spirit will always be with you. As you grow, may you come to recognize the presence and blessing of God in your life. May you be nurtured in your faith by the people surrounding you, and may you find a home within the faith community. And so let us join together before God in publicly making our promises regarding Evelyn's spiritual nurture in a litany of commitments. We promise to offer Evelyn a loving home where she may learn the importance of faithfulness to God through worship and service. We will teach her the way of Jesus through word and example, and we will further encourage her toward a personal commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Luke, please come here. That's about as much as he'll say. I don't think we're going to get him to actually say it. So he said enough. He gave her because he showed her he loved her. Right. Luke, will you love Evelyn? Yeah. Okay. Do you love her? Yeah. Okay. And the congregation. Family? Extended family? 
and our church family. May God help you in keeping these promises. May God help you in keeping these promises. May God be present in Evelyn's life and in our lives as we provide Evelyn nurture. Amen. If you would like to stand, if you're able, hymn number 213, I believe. I'm, I wrote the wrong number down, I'm sorry. Well, good morning. A lot of family here. Thank you for being here. I was nervous um, as I was preparing for today, thinking, my goodness, there's going to be so many family members here. And... Yeah, right. Yeah. And then I realized, they're not here to see me. They're here for Evelyn. <laughs> so, so there's nothing that I need to be nervous about. So, well, let's begin with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this morning, the sunshine. Thank you for the rain last night, Lord. Um, we thank you that we have air in our lungs, Lord, that our hearts are beating. And, and Father, we want to live our lives for you. And so as we're approaching your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, speak to us, speak through your word. We invite your presence here, Holy Spirit, as we seek to worship you in spirit and truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, okay, so we are still in John. We're in John 4, 16 through 26. And you'll recall that last week we approached this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. And we're taking it in two stages. And you recall that we looked at a lot of biblical history last week. First Kings, Second Kings, to understand the relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. Um, you know, there's a lot of history here between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel and what was actually happening. And then the northern kingdom, you remember, was, was overrun by the Assyrians and the Assyrians brought in new people. And then Alexander the Great, a couple hundred years later, brought in new people. And so the Samaritan country was, the Samaritan area, I should say, was really this mixture uh, of people that were coming in with these different worship practices and ideas and so the woman at the well was shocked that Jesus, a Jewish man, would even speak to her. And the main idea that we talked about last week was living water. And so today we're going to revisit that idea of living water and then, again, move into the second half of the conversation wherein Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that worship is done in spirit and truth. And so we're going to start with verses 13 and 14. So if you are there or not, I would encourage you to turn there. And we're going to read John 4, 13 
and 14. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That's the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so everyone who drinks of the water that is from the man-made well will be thirsty again. And would anyone here today object to the idea that water only temporarily satisfies our thirst? I don't think so. Right? No one would object to that. Right. So Jesus is using the well to form a contrast in the mind of the Samaritan woman. He's using a physical reality to describe a spiritual reality. A well of water must be perpetually drawn by hand because it can only temporarily satisfy our thirst. A well of living water does not need to be drawn. Rather, it rises to the surface, and thus it can satisfy our thirst eternally. Hudatas halamanu is the phrase that Scripture uses. And the idea here is that water is being pushed up. It is rising up, bubbling up. The verb that's used in Scripture is passive in form, which is very significant for our understanding. Passive verbs mean that the subject is acted upon. For instance, the golf ball was hit by the golfer. In other words, the golf ball is acted upon by the golfer. Notice I didn't say the golf ball was hit straight by the golfer. <laughs> that would be lying, right? In this case, the living water which Jesus is offering to the Samaritan woman is being acted upon. It's being pushed up by an external force. And so a few years ago, Kayla and I were remodeling an apartment that we were planning to live in. And um, as I'm working one day in the bathroom, uh, it turned out that the old subflooring needed to come out in the bathroom, and so I'm pulling it out. And the apartment has radiant heat, so we have these big cast iron radiators, you know, that are full of hot water. And so that means there are a lot of pipes all around in the floors, in the walls. And, and so there I was cutting away the flooring with a sawzall and, you know, not knowing what I'm doing, not paying attention. I happened to cut the pipe. Water is shooting everywhere. <laughs> Terrifying water. And so I cut this pipe, and the water is shooting everywhere. And this is a second-floor apartment. So underneath me is a plaster ceiling for the first-floor apartment. And so, you know, water is spilling all over the plaster ceiling, and I'm yelling for Kayla, Kayla, get me a bucket, get me a trash bag, get me anything that you can find so that I can lay it underneath this pipe and catch the water while I figure out what to do. And so Kayla got me a, a small container, and it filled up in about four seconds. And, <laughs> and so I handed it to Kayla, and I said, throw it outside and bring it back in here as quickly as possible. I don't know what to do. And so one of the things I love about my wife is her steady demeanor. She never gets too high. She never gets too low. Rather, she just moves at a steady pace. But this was not the time for a steady pace. <laughs> After what seemed like minutes, and I'm sure it was just a few seconds, I ran outside to see what in the world is going on. I told her, just take this outside, throw it anywhere. I don't care. Bring it back in here because I want to fill it up again. And as I looked, Kayla had walked out onto the porch, down the stairs of the apartment, 
into the backyard to dump out the water. And so by this time, I had already made it outside, so I just ran in the basement and turned the water off. But the point is, just as the water in that pipe was being pushed out of the hole by the force of pressure, the living water that Jesus gives to us is being pushed up, pushed out by his force. Where is it being pushed to? Well, let's look at verse 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so this is what we are thirsty for. But so oftentimes we mask our thirst for eternal life with something from this world only to find that it is not satisfying. And thus we must go back to it or else find something new in the hope that it will quench our thirst. The reality is that we put stuff in our lives not with the intention of satisfying purely physical desires. Rather, we put stuff in our lives with the intent of satisfying a desire that is deep within our hearts, our innermost being. Verse 14 explains this quite well. The one who drinks from the water which I will give to him will never thirst again because the water which I will give to him will become in him a spring of water flowing up to eternal life. Why will the person who drinks from the water which Jesus gives to him never thirst again? Because the water which Jesus gives will become in him a spring of water flowing up, rising up, pushing up to eternal life. And so we can ask the question, what are the things in our lives that we desire most? And I would encourage all of us to reflect on that question this week and ask yourself, what is the root of that desire? Is it purely physical or am I longing for something deeper? And the good news is that something deeper is available. Something that we were made for. Something that lies at the very core of who we are. The hour for spiritual worship has come, Jesus says. Let's look at verses 19 through 23. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, as in the sense of the Jews, you plural, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you Samaritans worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, as in the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And so after Jesus lovingly pointed out the sin in this woman's life, she proceeds to change the conversation and brings out the major source of theological disagreement between the Jews and the Samaritans. Has anybody ever done that? Or if you watch someone do that, instead of talking about the sin in our lives, we want to talk about theology or end times prophecy. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now it is true there was a dispute on the proper place of worship between the Jews and the Samaritans, but notice that Jesus does not directly answer the question Instead, he says, ma'am, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And so remember how it all began. God created mankind. And in the beginning, we were living in fellowship with God. There was nothing that separated God from Adam and Eve. But sadly, they failed. And thus, because of their sin, God removed them from His presence, which that is an act of mercy, by the way. As a result, we lost our source of spiritual life. But God did not leave us in a state of separation. He actively worked through history, which is verifiable, to restore the relationship that we violated. He chose Abraham and promised Abraham that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. After God rescued the Israelites from Egypt, he instructed them to build a tabernacle. And that tabernacle would be the place where God would dwell so that his people could be with him. Now, there were rules to follow. The people had to live a certain way, or else God would remove his presence. Later, this tabernacle would become the temple in Jerusalem, and there were laws that God gave to the Israelites. Laws not given to oppress his people, rather laws given to remind the people that God is holy and that we have failed in measuring up to his standard. Laws that would draw other nations to Israel so that they also might come to know the Lord. Animal sacrifices were offered to God through the temple, not because they took away the sins of the people. Rather, they were meant to remind the people that they were sinful and that they needed a Savior. And there is a budding hope throughout the Old Testament prophets, and it becomes louder and louder and louder as you approach the New Testament. God was working to provide a way for us to be with Him forever a way for us to worship Him in spirit and truth. The Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament was pointing to this hour which Jesus referred to when He was speaking to the Samaritan woman. And you might say, well, that's easy for you to say, Ryan. You have the benefit of hindsight. Well, what about the people of the Old Testament? Did they have any idea that something was coming? Yes. Yes, they did. I think of David in Psalm 51 after his affair with Bathsheba. And he was heartbroken that he had failed God. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And he was yearning for restoration, but he knew that no animal sacrifice could ever atone for his mistakes. Thus he says, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will never despise. I think of the prophet Jeremiah writing 600 years before Jesus. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds, 
and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach each their, each, excuse me, teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Truly, this is a special hour, a special time in salvation history. And what's more amazing is that Jesus reveals this to a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans were not standing in the stream of God's revelation. Jesus says to her, you worship what you do not know. But we, as in the Jews, worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. God chose to reveal himself through the Jewish people. The offspring that was promised to Abraham, the one that would be a blessing not just to one nation, but to all nations, is here. And his name is Jesus. The fact that Jesus revealed this to a a Samaritan woman should be immensely comforting to everyone in this room. Assuming that we are all Gentiles and no one in in this room is born Jewish. Because God in his mercy chose to include us in his plan of salvation. Has anyone ever seen the Steven Spielberg movie Back to the Future? No. Come, really? Now I know I'm not the only person in here who has seen Back to the Future. I know you have. I know you guys have. Anyway, Back to the Future. Great movies. One of my all-time favorites. And in, in those movies, there's this plot line that takes place where something in the past happens, right? They, they travel back into the past, and something occurs, and then it alters the future. And so the main character, Doc Brown, always says, you know, that the space-time continuum has been disrupted, The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has altered the space-time continuum. Things are different now. 600 years before the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jeremiah prophesied that they would be. And Jesus says to the Samaritan woman that things are different now. This side of the cross, God has written his law on our minds and on our hearts. Thus there is objective truth that we can know. And so sometime in the 1950s, there was a fashionable new idea that became popular in in a lot of academic circles. And the idea was that there is no real meaning in the words of an author. You know, rather, meaning is given or meaning is assigned by the person who reads something. And so essentially, essentially, the idea suggests that there is no such thing as an objective standard. Thus, what you read may mean one thing to you, and what I read may mean something completely different, but they're both right. The idea is incorrect, for if it were, it would be impossible to communicate with anyone, because there'd be no standard for interpretation. But yet this idea, unfortunately, is still around. It was originally called semantic autonomy, and you you may have heard of it as deconstructionism or religious non-realism. The point I'm making is that it is still around today. Most people are unaware that it even affects our thought processes. One notable way that this idea still affects our thought processes in our culture is conversations about morality. Who are you to tell me that something is wrong? There's no objective standard in morals. 
What's right for you may not be right for me. Thus, some persons believe God's word is simply a collection of value statements relative to an individual rather than a source of objective truth. They say that God's word is simply a do-good book that tells us how to be good people. But the Gospel of John is building a case that the hour of which Jesus spoke has changed the history of the world. In other words, John's Gospel is revealing objective truth. And so as a rule, when we're studying Scripture, we should strive to see the entire picture that's being presented before us, not just focusing in on one verse or two verses. And so in the beginning of John's Gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through Him. I might add, thus all things were made to worship Him. And Jesus then turned water into wine at a wedding using water jars that were meant for purification rites. And the Jewish people were to maintain their outer cleanliness in order to worship God so that they would be reminded that only God can cleanse them. Jesus' miracle symbolized that the time for ceremonial washing was now complete. A spiritual cleansing is now at hand. He then went to the temple in Jerusalem and threw out the merchants who were preventing the Gentiles from coming to worship. And when questioned by the Jewish leaders, Jesus said that his body is the true temple. The worship of God is no longer done at a physical location. Rather, it's done through the temple of Christ's body. And so the time for spiritual worship is at hand. He told Nicodemus that no one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again from above, born of water and spirit. And this was a radical idea for Nicodemus who thought that entering God's kingdom was simply done by being born Jewish. And the plan of salvation by God is that persons from all nations would come into his kingdom. And so the time for spiritual birth has come. And he told the Samaritan woman that only he has the living water that can satisfy her desires. And there was a longing in her heart for something that she did not understand. She thought that she could satisfy the desires of her heart with men. But it only left her broken at least five times. The time for our spiritual thirsting to be satisfied has come. And so taken together, John is painting a picture of reality. This is the way things really are. We were made by God, and thus we were made to worship Him. We can cleanse our physical bodies, but only He can cleanse us from our sins. The place for worship is no longer in Jerusalem. Rather, the true temple is the resurrected body of Christ. Anyone can enter into this temple by being born again from above by experiencing a second birth of water and spirit. And the spirit that Jesus gives to us will satisfy our every desire because he is truly what we are desiring. We desire to be with him because he is our creator. So let's go down to verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so I want to read you just a paragraph or two from 
famed biblical scholar D.A. Carson. I don't know if anybody knows that name. Um, you do, but you don't know Back to the Future. Hard to believe, Mike. I'm going to read just two paragraphs here of what D.A. Carson says about this particular verse. In this context, spirit characterizes what God is like. In the same way that flesh, location, and corporeality characterize what human beings and our world is like. In the same way, God is spirit means that God is invisible, divine as opposed to human, life-giving, and unknowable to human beings unless he chooses to reveal himself. As God is light and God is love, so God is spirit. These are the elements in the way God presents himself to human beings in his gracious self-disclosure in his son, Jesus Christ. And he has chosen to reveal himself. He has uttered his word, his own self-expression, in that word, now become flesh, he may be known as truly as it is possible for human beings to know him. That incarnate word is the one who baptizes his people in the Holy Spirit. For unless they are born again from above, unless they are born of the Spirit, they cannot see the kingdom of God. They cannot worship God truly. This provision of the Spirit is made possible by the work of him who is the truth and who by his glorification, by way of the cross, pours out the Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Truth. This God who is Spirit can be worshipped only in Spirit and Truth. In other words, it's about Jesus. It has always been about Jesus, and it will always be about Jesus. Worshipping God in Spirit and Truth means more than worship without ties to a physical location. Although that is true. We don't have to be, excuse me, we do not have to be at a church building to worship God. But ultimately, worshiping God is worshiping God in spirit and truth means that we are worshiping God through the supernatural life that we now enjoy. Just as a baby in the womb cannot smile at their parents until it is born into this world. Neither can we truly worship God unless we are born of the Spirit. John 3.34 says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit to him without measure. That means Jesus has the Spirit without measure. And one of our favorite passages of Scripture, John 3.16 and 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so the creator of all things has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he came to give us spiritual life so that we can worship God in spirit and truth. So I'll close by saying this. Someone you know is thirsty. They're searching for something. But they just, they just don't know what it is. Tell them this week that the hour has come. Jesus is offering to them living water that will satisfy their every desire. He's offering them spiritual life so that their hearts can be eternally satisfied by worshiping God 
in spirit and truth. And so if you would, please stand with me. We'll sing hymn number 74.